Amen. Well, in the first chapter, the first verse of chapter 3, Paul opens it up this way. He says, finally, my brothers. Now, with the contemporary ear that we all have, we hear that and we immediately begin to think that whoever uses terminologies like that is about to wrap things up in, in their discourse. That's, we, we think they're going to finish. That is, unless you've been to church. If you've been to church and you've heard sermons and you've heard those preachers preach, you know that sometimes they use that phrase, and finally, and they keep preaching. Right, so uh, so when you're younger, you kind of hear that whole uh, and finally, then your your taste buds and your hunger begins to churn in your stomach, and you think, "Golden crowd, here we come!" And then he just keeps on preaching for another twenty, thirty minutes. It reminds me kind of of the little boy who finally got to sit in big church with his mom and dad. So excited about it, wanted to make sure that he was taking everything in, understood everything that was being said. And at one particular point, the preacher used that same phrase, and finally, and he, little boy turns to his dad, and he says, Daddy, what does the preacher mean when he says, and finally? And the, the father turns to his son and whispers in his ear and says to him, absolutely nothing, son. It means absolutely nothing. Well, here, Paul is using the phrase, and finally, brothers, and, uh, but yet he continues to write the second half of this book. He's, he's gone through two chapters, and now he has two, two more chapters. The question is, what's going on here? This is kind of what makes it a little bit complicated, uh, these three verses, is why does he use that terminology? Well, some would suggest that he's using that terminology because, in fact, he wanted to sum things up. He uses terms like this in some of his other letters, like in the book of Ephesians, but there he actually does wrap things up. Here, he does not. And so some would say, well, he did want to kind of close things down, wanted to finish things up. But then as he starts doing, have you ever done this? Maybe a phone conversation. You're like, okay, well, we'll talk to you later. Oh, wait a minute. And then something comes to your mind. And the next thing you know, you're on the phone for another hour. Or maybe he was sitting there writing these very words. And as he does, Timothy says to him and says, hey, by the way, did you mention to them what we were talking about just last week? He say, oh, yeah, I, I almost forgot. And he begins to write all the more. That's one view of what is going on here in the text of Scripture. That certainly could be the case. There are others, however, that argue that maybe something different is going on. That in the first century, that that phrase, the phrase that we use in finally brothers, meant something different. It didn't mean that we're about to wrap up. It means instead that we're going to segue into a different subject. And that can, again, can certainly be the case here. Remember, the overarching theme of the whole book is that we are to live a life worthy of the gospel, right? We got that. And so he's been showing us ways in which living worthy of the gospel looks. And we just got done with a huge section on humility. He says, if you're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, we must learn to live in humility. And he gave us the ultimate example of Christ. He showed us what it looked like in, 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 in average, everyday living with, with Timothy and with Epaphroditus. And now he's transitioning. So really, instead of just saying, finally, my brothers, he might be saying, uh, and furthermore, brothers, here's yet a another way that you need to live out the gospel. And here he transitions from humility to the subject of false teaching. False teaching. Now the question that immediately rises is this, what is false teaching and recognizing false teaching and being protected against false teaching have anything to do with living a life worthy of the gospel? And what I would say is it has everything to do with it. And here's why, because simply put, or simply as I can, I can put it, you live out what you believe. You live out what you believe. If you think wrongly, you live wrongly. 
if you think rightly, you then live rightly. I, I don't know if that makes any sense to you. But in other words, you, you can't live out something that you don't know. And so what we need to know is we need to know the truth. We need to know what it looks like to live according to the gospel. But if we are being impacted by false teaching, if you're being impacted by false theology and false ideas, things that the Bible is not clearly teaching, then that is going to ultimately uh, corrupt the way that we are living unto God. It will make it impossible for us to live a life unto the gospel or, or live out a life worthy of the gospel. So here what Paul does is he really gives us three things. He gives us three things in the text that help us navigate this subject of false teaching in the church. Number one, First thing that we see is this. He, he, he gives us a safeguard against false teaching. So right from the get-go, he's going to let you and I know how we should protect ourselves from false teaching and false theology that people would ultimately confront us with. Notice, if you will, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So what we find out again is I've got to explain a bunch of stuff. This is why this text is difficult. When, the question that arises immediately in that sentence is, what does he mean when he uses the word same things? What is he referring to when he says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you, or the same things to you is no trouble to me? Well, again, scholars are divided. Just hang with me for a moment. Some suggest that what he's referring to is his command to rejoice, just right before he mentions this. That he's actually commanded that on several accounts. And, and certainly the book has uh, at least a theme of joy because he references joy or rejoice some 15 times in the book. And so people are saying the things that he's repeating is this command to rejoice. He's already kind of given it a couple times. For example, in, 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 in uh, chapter 1 and verse 18, he wrote this. What then... Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. So in chapter 1, he said, I don't care who is ultimately propagating and proclaiming and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't even care if they have the wrong motivation. I will rejoice if the true gospel is being preached. Then he goes on in chapter 2 and verses 17 and 18, and he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here he basically gave the command, look, bad things happen. We suffer for righteousness sake. You ought to rejoice when I suffer for righteousness sake. And when you suffer for righteousness sake, you ought to rejoice as well. So, so he has taught on rejoicing. And now his command is simply rejoice in the Lord. Now, some believe that he's talking about repeating himself, writing the same things, deals with that command. Others say, no, it has nothing to do with his command to rejoice. Instead, it has to do with his commands and his teachings that he's about to write concerning false teaching. Okay, And so the only problem with that is he doesn't write about false teaching in the book up to this point. He has mentioned people who preach the gospel, true theology, from a wrong motivation, but he hasn't preached people teaching wrong the wrong gospel until now. And because of that, what they would say, those that hold that position, would ultimately say what he's probably referring to is the time that he was in Philippi and he was teaching and discipling the people there. He was teaching them these truths about this false doctrine and these false teachers. Or when he sits there and says, it's no problem for me to write to you again, he may have even written another letter at one particular time on this very subject. So here's the question. 
When he says it's no trouble to write these things again, what are these things referring to? Is it the command about rejoicing or is it his teaching that he's about to give about false teaching? And my answer to that, which should come to no surprise, is I'm not completely sure, really. And you say, well, what's the point? Well, we're going to unpack it. I actually think that he's referring to both, and we're going to get that to just a moment. But what I want to draw your attention to, something that I never saw, but maybe it's, I'm only seeing this because I'm a preacher, but I think you can see it in the text. Have you noticed that he seems to be a little bit sensitive about the fact that he knows that he's repeating himself? Did you note that? It's almost like he's a little bit almost apologetic that he's repeating teaching that he's already given to them. Now, why would that be? Because he's a preacher and he knows what it's like to preach the same message or same truths to people and have them look at you and say, yeah, 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 blah, 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 roll eyes, sigh here. You've already told us all this before. Tell us something that we don't know. Listen, nothing blesses the heart of a pastor more than to pour his heart into the preaching of the word of God and then in turn have people come up afterwards and go, hey, that was a pretty good message. It's not that you taught me anything that I didn't already know, but thank you so much. So for some people, and this has actually happened to me in one church that I was preaching, I'd been preaching there for seven years and and just so you know, this is the only church I've ever preached in in seven years, so that kind of gives it away. Uh, I had a woman, very lovely, we, we joke about it to this day. They ended up moving away and leaving and, and on her way out. She goes, well, you know, we're going to miss you, but it's, 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 it's not like I, I ever heard or learned anything here that I hadn't already known before I came. And so you're like, well, God bless you. You know, praise Jesus. Glad God could use us to bore you, right? And so some people, when they listen to a sermon, they're basically giving it the nod plus or minus. Now think about this for yourself. It's a good message if you hear something that you've never heard before, thumbs up. But if you've heard it before, then it's a little bit, okay, well, that was fine, but you, know, you haven't taught me anything new. People listen to the word of God and the preaching of God's words like the Athenians did in Acts chapter 17 and verse 21. Listen to what Luke says about them. He says, now the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. There are some folks in the church that are at danger because all they want to hear is something new, something exciting, something that they've never heard before, and there's an inherent danger to this. And the danger is that you begin to ignore what you know is true, and you begin to open yourself up to things that are not true. Uh, let me explain something very carefully. There is no more special revelation. That is, that there is no more God-inspired truth as far as who he is and what he requires of you and news and in, in truth concerning his salvific plan for the world, that is, his saving plan for the world, that he has not already given us right here in the word of God. It is the completed canon. God has spoken once and for all. Jude says it this way. In Jude chapter 1 and verse Verses 1 through 3, excuse me one second, in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, Behold, he says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to, convent, to, to contend for the faith, for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is precisely the context of what Paul is dealing with here. 
He knows that there are going to be a group of teachers that are going to come to Philippi, false teachers, and they're going to begin saying things and teaching things that are very new to the Philippians and are very interesting to them. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get them to guard themselves for falling in and taking on this false theology. So you know what he does? He says, what you need to do is you need to repeat the truths that you already know to be true. In fact, specifically, you need to repeat to yourself the truths that you know concerning Christ. It's what he says when he says, rejoice in the Lord. So how do we keep from falling off the bandwagon? How do we keep from falling and going into a false religion? It is the repetition of consistently hearing, understanding, reading sound doctrine and rejoicing continually in all that we are, all that we know, and all that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. Now listen, when, when you and I were saved, everything about Christianity except for tithing was exciting, right? You with me? Everything was exciting. Some of you are not going to smile no matter what. All right, and so that's okay. Be that way. And so uh, it, 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 it was all exciting. Remember the stories and how exciting they were? I remember reading the Bible and looking up and you go, you've got to be kidding me. And new believers, I don't want to use the word cute because it's kind of demeaning. I would say joy. New believers are joyful to me, right? And, and the reason I is because everything's exciting. They get into the Old Testament. They come up and they go, man, did you read the story about the three guys and the pizza oven? Did you read that? And what's up with the guy that just appears? Where did he come from? And then you sit there and you go, oh, you mean the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they look at you and go, no, I don't think that's it. Um, and you're like, no, that, that, that's it. Uh, or, or they begin to say, and what about the guy? I, I, I forget what his name is. Uh, the son of Sam, I think is his name. He's in the Old Testament. And he, and he kills all the people with the jawbone of a donkey. And you're like, no, not son of Sam. It's Samson, Samson is the one who killed the people, son of Sam, completely different, right? Uh, But they're so cute because they're so excited. The problem is, and the danger that we fit in, we who come to church and are part of Bible studies and read the Bible, study the Bible, we are all under this impending danger of allowing those things that once moved us in our flesh for them to become all too common for us. To hear the truth and, and the exaltation and the height of God's mercy and God's grace and all that we've received and us just sit back and kind of yawn for a moment and then begin desire to just simply hear something new. And, and, and this is the danger in which we f- often find ourselves in. When we are saved, those things are exciting. They are exhilarating. They are wonderful. And, and we continue to learn things. But his point is sitting here going, look, the way for you to contend and to, f- to, to keep from falling off the, 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 from what you know and the truth that you know is a consistent repetition and praise and rejoicing to all you know, to all you are, and all you have in Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Now, when we lose sight of the value of Christ, I believe this is when people begin to fall into the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. When, when, when they begin to sit there and go, there's got to be more to this than just, than just Jesus. You mean that Jesus is our reward? There's got to be something more. Then they begin to look, and the next thing they know, they're in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. They begin to worship the things of the world, and then they, they believe that it's God's idea for them to be uh, uh, materialistic. 
Uh, or, or those that would sit back and, and they begin to lose sight of all they have in Christ. And then somebody comes along to them and says, hey, you're missing something. Some, some, some pagan uh, salesman that comes and says, hey, you're missing something. You're missing some of the gifts. And then you sit there and you thought, well, I thought I had received everything for godliness and for salvation in Christ Jesus. Is there something else that I'm missing? And then they begin to promote all these ecstatic kind of spiritual gifts because you feel like you've missed something. And the idea that he keeps getting crossed to is you have not, you are lacking nothing. There is nothing you need, nothing you could want, nothing. It is beyond imagination, all that we are, all that we have in Jesus Christ. Let me sum it up this way. Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite writers. I say writers because when he preaches, I can't understand him. He's too smart. And so when he writes, it helps me. He writes this. He says, we are rarely as mature as we think. We are never beyond needing the truth of Scripture explained to us again. The freshness lies not in novelty, but in the power of the Spirit helping us to see how much more wonderful and potent is the truth we already knew. Then we realize how comparatively superficial our knowledge once was. Do you understand how that works in you? These are the same truths, but we don't need necessarily more truths or new truths. What we need is the Holy Spirit to work in our eyes and open up our hearts and understand the depth of the value of what we already have in Jesus Christ. It keeps us and safeguards us from going out and seeking something that God had never intended us to have. Second thing that we see in the scriptures, first of all, we see a safeguard against false teaching The second thing that we see is a description of false teaching. A description of false teaching. Now note, he says uh, in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He uses the phrase look out three times. He's trying to get her attention. He's, in other words, saying beware or be on your guard. And he uses these three really terse, really biting descriptions to describe one particular group of false teachers. The false teachers would have been known at the time as the Judaizers. And Paul can't stand this group of people. And the reason is, is because they add something to the gospel. They would believe, in fact, that, hey, guess what? You were saved by grace through faith alone. Plus, they would say, you also have to follow the law, the Old Testament law, indicating that they would have to become Jewish and follow its practices and its dietary laws and even circumcision if you were, if you were a Gentile in order to truly be born again. And Paul couldn't stand this kind of false teaching. And, and if you were reading, if you were one of the Philippians and you were reading this, you're like, whoa, Paul, calm down. Why so angry? Why so invidious? Why, why, are you, why do you dislike this group so much? Well, Paul, it, it is said that this group hasn't even made it to Philippi yet, but Paul is trying to give them the heads up, trying to warn them that they're coming their ways, but Paul has been dealing with them for over a decade. In fact, it had been 11 years to this particular point that they had in the book of Acts this thing called the Council of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council, whereby the church made an official statement and the official statement was this, a person is saved by grace or faith alone, not of any works, not of circumcision, not of you following the law, not by you becoming Jewish. But yet, even though they make this, this public profession of truth and they side with Paul, these Judaizers, everywhere Paul goes, they go into those same communities as soon as Paul leaves and they begin to teach false doctrines to them and they begin to get 
followers and they begin to lead them astray. And so the question then is, 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 is why, what is it then that he's really calling them? What is he trying to get at? Well, the first thing that he calls them is dogs. And that's a difficult thing for us to think is a negative thing, right? I mean, we even in our modern vernacular, we like to use the word dog. What's up, dog? What's up? You my dog. Yo, you my dog, son. Yeah, my dog, dog, diggity dog. Yeah, and so we, we now I say we, somebody speaks like that, but, but, but you understand what, what I mean. He, he, that's, my, that's my dog, you know? And other times we, it's hard for us because we're pet people, right? Any pet people, all right? We love pets. We have some we'd like to give away if you are. And uh, so anyway, and um, right, isn't that correct? So we've got a couple pets we're trying to give away. But when I think of a dog, I think, well, of this. I think of Blue dog. This is my dog, right? This is uh, our dog. Uh, you know, just, yeah, it's so sweet. What a handsome boy. And so, you know, we, we think of this, but this is not the picture. When he calls him a dog, he's not thinking about blue dog, okay? That's not the picture that comes in his mind. Instead, what they're thinking is they are thinking of scavengers. They don't have pets in their home. These are dogs that run around uh, with disease. These are dogs that are disgusting. They're eating grime. They're eating garbage. In fact, the word dog was, was given, it was reserved by the Jewish people for unbelieving Gentiles because they would eat garbage. They wouldn't, they wouldn't eat and follow the, the dietary laws of the Jews. So when they thought and they were thinking of, of dog, this is more of what they think right here, that. That's what they think. Or maybe, maybe this a little bit, or, or maybe this right here. There we go. All right, shut that off. We can't eat ice cream after this if we, if, if we keep looking at this. So the idea with the dog is this, is not, is not a compliment. What they're ultimately saying is that these false teachers, they're scavengers. And what they do is they go around from church to church and place to place and they find people who are not solid and do not know their theology and do not know the truth of God's word, even though they think they may because they're tired of hearing the repetition of God's truth and they want to hear something new and they feast on those that are prone to hearing something new and yet diminish their thanksgiving and the joy of knowing what is true that has been repeated to them time and time again. They're dogs. He says they're not only dogs, he says, but they're also evil doers. This is Paul turning things around on them again. They boast that they were not evildoers. They were boasting that they were doers of good, doers of the Old Testament. Why? Because they believe you had to do what was right in order to be born again. And he says there, and he says, you think that you do good, but you're the true evildoers. Then thirdly, he gives them the word, the mutilators of the flesh. Not to be very descriptive or overly descriptive of this, but what Paul's doing is he's kind of giving this picture that we see in the Old Testament. You might remember the Old Testament uh, story of, of the prophets of Baal. And there they are with Elijah, and they're trying to see whose God is real. And they, they have a burnt offering that they want to be burnt up. And, and, and there's, the, there's the 450 prophets of Baal, and they're calling out to their God, and they're, and they're cutting themselves. Literally, the, the Greek interpretation is they were, they were mutilating themselves. Why are they doing it? Because they're trying to demand and earn some type of audience with their God so that their God would hear from them. And Paul's saying, you guys are doing the same exact thing. You guys are, are having, this is no spiritual benefit to you whatsoever. All you're doing is mutilating yourself. 
It's not as though Paul was against circumcision, the practice. But what he would have been against is this, is the thinking by you doing something outwardly that it was going to gain you an audience and it was going to gain the love and the acceptance of God based on something you do of you being cut. The whole gospel is about him being cut, him bleeding on your behalf, not you doing it to get to him. And so he comes out. And the question, though, is why is he so angry? I mean, he's angry. If I use this kind of speech uh, about other churches or other people communicating the word, you'd probably be like, dude, that's way too judgmental. He is using his, his most angry language of all of his writings to be able to attack these people. Why so strong? Well, according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he gets even more harsh. Listen to what he says. He's talking to them, in fact, about these Judaizers. He says, but even if we or any for, or, or, or any, uh, excuse me, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Again, why is he so strict here? Because this is not an open hand issue. This is an issue of life and death. There are things in the church that we can disagree on. We could disagree on music styles, how somebody should dress, or how, how the, the, the sanctuary should be uh, decorated. There's even theological things that we may disagree on. We may dis- disagree on eschatology, the end times. Some might be pre-mill. Some might be post-mill. Some might be paper-mill. You, you, you don't know what you are and all this. It's okay. Nobody really understands what's going on there anyway. Okay, so that's not something that breaks fellowship But what does break fellowship is the difference in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is where we should become angry. That is where it's legitimate to complain. When I was in North Carolina um, pastoring up there where I made just uh, so many different mistakes as a young pastor and really brought a lot of difficulties on myself uh, with no fault of anybody else, um, there were difficulties, though, of theology And there were difficulties as well of just kind of things that don't really matter. And it seemed like I was losing a lot of the folks in the church because they just wanted a different style of music or they wanted a different dress style. There was only one way that they should ultimately be able to dress. And we're trying to, and the church was divided between these two things. And I was trying to somehow work it back together. Well, it wasn't long before we went from a church of 80 to 50, and I did that all by myself. And, um, and what happened is people were leaving, which is disconcerting for the pastor. But what's also more di- what's even more difficult is that they were leaving for other churches in our community. And so, I, to be honest with you, I met with some of these pastors, and I said, listen, you, you owe me some money or something. Man, I'm filling your churches up by emptying my own, right? I, I, you ought to give me some props, maybe a little tip or something. And so we're sending them off into these places. But here's what was so difficult, not just that they were leaving, but for what kind of churches they were leaving to. The two largest churches in our, in, in our county in North Carolina were churches that preached and held to baptismal regeneration, what that simply means is that they held to the belief that a person is born again by not only placing their faith in Christ, but also through baptism. That baptism, if you're not baptized, then you cannot be born again. The way that God saves you, they say, is through your faith in Christ and your act of baptism equals salvation. And this bothered me greatly. I said, how can they leave here and go there when, when, when they have got nothing in common, and I would begin to talk with them, and I would say, look, I understand that you want to leave. I understand that. But why in the world would you go there? 
They go, well, we go there because we agree on those things that are important. What things are important? The same style of music. The same clothing that we ultimately wear. It's, it's just somewhere where we feel most comfortable. And I said, but they're preaching a completely different gospel. They're not even preaching the gospel. And when I would explain it to them, here's the response. Tomato, tomato. In other words, what they're saying is there's really no difference. It's the same exact thing. We're just explaining it two different ways. No tomato, tomato. These are completely two different gospels. So the reason, look, here's what I would suggest to you. If, whether this church or anyone else, we don't have angry people here. So let's just use your imagination. If you were at another church, you may have gotten angry with different decisions that are being made. Let me give you a legitimate reason to be angry here at Celebration. And a legitimate reason to complain is when the gospel is not being preached, the, there's a false gospel being preached, or the gospel is not being preached in its entirety. The third one is the biggest problem that we have. The biggest problem we have is people will say, come to Jesus, he'll make you happy. Come to Jesus, he'll make you richer. Come to Jesus, he'll give you joy. And droves of people are responding to that gospel, but there's no mention of repent of your sin. Turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. That's no gospel. If you're gonna get angry, that's what we ought to be angry about. What Paul deserves his anger for. So there's three things. First of all, he gives us a safeguard against false teaching. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Understand the word of God. Know it. Know who you are in Christ. Know all that you have received in Jesus Christ. Then when a salesman comes along telling you that you don't have anything, you recognize him as a false teacher right to begin with. Second thing is to contrast, uh, to, to recognize or understand the description of a false teacher. There are people that try to bend and warp and preach a gospel that is not the true gospel. Here's number three, and I'm going to go through this very quickly, and I would finish out this third point by saying, and finally, so take that for whatever it's worth, all right? And finally, I'll try not to be Paul. Verse three, for we are the circumcision, he says. Let me try to explain this as easily as I can, simple as I can. He's basically saying, for we are, and he's, and he's talking about those who are true believers. He's just describing this is what true born-again believers are like. Let me tell you what false believers look like. Let me tell you what a true believer looks like. And then, and then he begins to, 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 to talk about, and he begins to lay some things out. But his whole point is this. He wants them to know that true salvation was not about literal physical circumcision but rather was about circumcision of the heart. We have to remember in the Old Testament what the purpose of the command to be circumcised was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were two primary purposes. Number one was to identify with the nation of Israel, with the Jewish people. That's what that was. You identified with them if you would be physically circumcised. The second primary purpose of that circumcision was to demonstrate an an outward sign of an inward reality that showed that our greatest need is for God to cut away the sin of our heart in order to come into a right relationship with him. And Paul is saying is you can cut on yourself all you want exteriorly. The only way for you to be saved is for God and God alone to cut the sin away from your heart. And then he begins to kind of describe what these new believers looks like. He, said, he says there's just three things very quickly. He says those who truly believe are those who worship by the Spirit of God you're familiar with your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you are, that this is very similar language that, that Jesus uses in John chapter 4 with the women at the well. 
There's a woman at the well, and she begins to argue with him. Where's the appropriate outward place to, to worship God? Is it here on Mount Morizon like we, uh, 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 that we say, or is it there in Jerusalem? And, and Jesus says to her, he goes, you're, you're missing the point. It's not about what location or what mountain you're ultimately worshiping. What matters is the issue of the heart, that you're worshiping from the heart. And he responds to her this way. He says, woman, believe me that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Then in verse 3, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Here's what he's saying. Those who are truly believers in Jesus Christ worship God in spirit and truth because the Holy Spirit dwells within them. The Holy Spirit dwells within them. And the way that you know that the Holy Spirit dwells within you is that you do works unto righteousness. Do you see the difference between the two? The false teachers will always say, do works for salvation. The gospel always says, be saved in order to do good works. And so what do they do? They worship by the Spirit. Number two, they boast in Christ. They boast in Christ. What does this mean? It means the heart of every believer, listen to me, see, see how this resonates with your own heart. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we love to boast, we love to talk, we love to hear about Jesus. We love it. One of the things that I have found with people that I get concerned with of whether they truly get this whole gospel thing and if they're really truly in the faith is they love to listen about, talk about the minutiae of what is right and what is wrong. They love to talk about, hey, is this right? Is this wrong? Uh, can we do this? Can we not do this? What do you think about this? And, and I'm not talking about just having a discussion about things. What I found is those people who have the Holy Spirit abiding with them, what they love to talk about, what they love to hear about is Christ and the completed work of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for them and all they want to do for him. They boast in Christ. Third thing is there's no confidence in the flesh. There are often times that I will talk to people about their salvation and I'll go, well, say, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And it's ultimately like, and this is a good way to say it, man, I repented and I believed in Jesus Christ. Sometimes I'll ask people that I'm discipling, who is the ultimate determiner of your salvation? You are God. And many times they'll sit there, and this is where we may disagree, but they'll ultimately sit there and says, I was. And I said, so if you're the ultimate determiner of your salvation, then when we get to heaven, all the praise and glory will be to you because you have the final say in your salvation. And they'll sit there and go, well, maybe not. And I'll begin to ask questions. Let me ask you this. You have a family member that in your family, whether your mom or dad or, or brothers and sisters that are unbelievers. Yeah, yeah, I've got a sister that's an unbeliever. Did she grow up in the same house as you did? Yes. Is she worse than you? No. Is she, is she less intelligent than you are? No. Then why did you believe? Was it because you were smarter? Was it because you were less sinful? Look, I'm not going to explain that I understand how all of that works. All I know is this is you can have no confidence in your intellect, ability, or your own righteousness if you want to be born again. If you are born again, your confidence is in the completed work of Jesus Christ, that he did it all on the cross, and here's why. Because you could not. Because you could not, no matter what you ultimately do. But there's an application for living as well. It's not only that we come to Christ and we're saved by having no confidence in what we do, whether it be baptism, whether it be through, through, through circumcision, whatever those things are in the context of Paul, when we come to him and we live, we need to live in the same way that we have no confidence in our flesh. 
And what I mean by that is simply this, is that sometimes we begin to sit there and we get down and we get down on ourselves and we're like, Mike, I'm not living the life that I need to ultimately be living. And look, it's okay to feel that guilt. It's okay to feel that shame. God uses that to lead us to repentance and to begin to do what is right. But here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to get so far down on yourself that you miss the glory of God. What you need to understand, some of you just need to hear this. God has no confidence in your flesh to do the right thing. None. He doesn't love you any less when you stumble and you fall. And he doesn't love you any more when you do all the right things. His love is unconditional. So not only in our salvation, but in our living in our everyday, what do we do? We boast in him. We put no confidence in the flesh. We put our confidence in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Now, once again, what does this mean? Well, what does that teaching lead you to want to do? Does it lead you to want to go out and sin all the more so that grace may abound? tell you what it does for me and it's only by the grace of god knowing that i did nothing to work for him nothing to add to my salvation makes me want to express my affection and my thanksgiving by living for him that's how it works false teaching is always be saved by doing the right thing the gospel is always be saved so that you are enabled to do what is right and glorifying to god so that you may live a life worthy of the gospel. And some of you are going to say today, Mike, we've heard this over and over again. And thus I would say, to say these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We love you. We thank you.